So I invite you to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 12. So Romans chapter 12. And we're uh, making our way through the book of Romans uh, together. And uh, before we read together, let's, let's pray. Father, we come to your word with eager expectation and we pray that you would answer our expectations and speak to us and challenge us and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans chapter 12, we're uh, reading from verse 9. So we looked at 1 to 8 last time. And uh, Paul says in verse 9, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thoughts to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if the enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So last week we noted that at the beginning of the chapter, there's a significant transition of mood. Um, and uh, what we've seen so far is, of course, is that you know, in chapters 1 to 11, uh, Paul has been uh, spelling out the marvelous truths of the gospel. So it's just statement after statement of, of great truth uh, of the meaning of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God that is... Uh, in it all. And, and uh, by the end of chapter 11, uh, Paul is so filled with, with wonder at the riches of wisdom, knowledge, and knowledge of God that he breaks out into a kind of almost into song. You can just imagine his, his secretary, he was writing, you know, the secretary was helping him write this, as you, you can see at the end of the book. And uh, you can just imagine the secretary just writing these things down as Paul is, is busy, bit, you know, expounding the truth and the secretary is writing it down. And then Paul suddenly just breaks into this kind of hymn of praise and worship, which he starts writing down as well. It's just an amazing thing, uh, really. And uh, uh, so he's filled with this joy and uh, wonder at the, the wisdom and knowledge of God expressed in the gospel. Now, it's, it's with this in view that a transition happens at the beginning of chapter 12, because he begins with, uh, uh, therefore, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, in, in light of all I have said, everything I have said from chapters 1 to 11, therefore, this is now what you need to do. 
And what we, we began to look at this last week, and we, be, we saw that it begins with a, a transformation of the mind. Uh, the Christian is not to be under the pattern of this world's thinking. And uh, there is a pattern of thinking in the world, and we all fall into it. And we kind of tend to go with the flow, with the way the world thinks. And that's the kind of default setting we all, everybody, every single person has. And Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Instead, be transformed. Undergo a a metamorphosis. Uh, Be changed and be continually transformed as you become more and more Christ-like. That transformation begins with the the power of the gospel coming in and the spirit of God giving life and renewing so much about you. And at that fundamental level, you are renewed as a Christian, but then it begins to kind of work its way out into your mind and your heart and your body. And uh, Paul is encouraging his hearers, be transformed, continue to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the Christian never stands still. The Christian is always changing, always, always growing, always growing in understanding, growing in maturity, growing in your closeness of fellowship to God. And it's interesting that in the first place, Paul expects us to see that that's, he expects us to see this in the church. Because he begins to speak about the church as a body. Not as, not as a collection of individuals. So much Christianity today is people thinking, I'm just an individual. And I just have my relationship with Jesus. And I just get my teaching. And that's enough. But Paul has this view of, of Christians being bonded together in a body. And... There is this organic connection that is, is formed within this body of people. That, uh, and it's, a, it's an organic connection that real Christians cannot avoid. And shouldn't avoid. It's simply not possible to say, I am a Christian, but yeah, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be part of a Christian church. It's not possible. It's a denial of the gospel. A denial of the outworking of the gospel in your life. And so that leads to Christians serving one another. As people consider their gifts and their resources and all that they've been given, they use them to serve and help one another in the Christian life. And it's one of the signs... That a Christian, indeed the church, has truly grasped the gospel and rejoices in it. That Christians are transformed in this way. They become new people in how they think and their attitude that they have to other Christians in the local church. And how they use their gifts and everything they have and they've been given for the glory of God. Now Paul continues this uh, train of uh, imperatives 
you know, commands. Uh, and these, these are, remember, these are all the natural response to the, the glories of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, and he says all of this, uh, there are, I, count, I think I counted accurately, but I'm not sure, there are 43 commands in this little section. 43. 43 imperative statements. Things for us to do. Like a machine gun. Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> and he tells us what we need to do. Now, I don't have a 43-point sermon. <laughs> but I thought we could gather our headings under maybe four, four main headings. Uh, let's think about, first of all, genuine love. Then we'll move on to being a blessing to others. Thirdly, we'll look at harmonious living. And fourthly, good overcoming evil. So first of all, first of all genuine love. Verses 9 through to 13. Paul starts by saying, let love be genuine. And it's interesting here that the, the kind of love that he speaks of is, is what you might call agape love. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the Greeks actually had four words for love. We just got one. We have to use adjectives to describe what kind of love we're using. But they have four words for, for love. And one of them is agape. And it's the kind of love that is, is often just used of God and his self-giving love. Uh, so if you look back at 5 verse 8, chapter 5 verse 8, he says this, But God shows his agape love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This agape love. Self-giving love that gets nothing in return. Self-giving love. And, and it's the kind of love from which none of us as Christians can be separated, whatever our circumstances. And Paul makes that point at the end of chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And now he uses it for Christians with Christians. A self-giving love for one another. Christians are to love one another with that same kind of of self-giving love that God himself showed in reaching out to sinners, to enemies. Love in this way. And it's the kind of love that cannot be diminished by, by circumstances and adverse difficulties and so on. Love. And Paul says, let that kind of love be genuine, or literally in the Greek word is unhypocritical. Let this love be unhypocritical. You know what hypocrite is? Somebody puts on a mask, like the you know the Greek players that you know in the, in the theatre they put on a mask to to convey uh, emotions on the on the mask, and that's what it means. A, a, a kind of hypocrite is putting on a mask. And you pretend to be something you're not. And what Paul, I think, is concerned about here is that Christians, when they meet together, might be tempted to put on a mask with each other. And to look as though they're being really loving. <laughs> uh, or, and to do just enough serving. 
and maybe just enough, give just enough money or to, uh, to ask just enough concerned questions about one another to, sh- to give this idea, this impression that you, you're being very loving and actually in your heart of hearts you're something else. But it's not really, and that love is not really genuine. And it's interesting that Paul, he moves on from that and he says, abhor what is evil, as though what he's just talked about, a kind of possibly a hypocritical kind of love, is a kind of evil in the church. A hypocritical love, it's a, it is a great evil, isn't it? So let's hate that kind of fake Christianity that puts on a show. Let's be zealous about it. Let's let's not be slothful in our love for one another. Let's be fervent. Let's have this idea in our minds that nothing should hold us back from loving one another. Genuine love is, is always practical. It always means being willing to actually do something. John says in 1 John 3.18 Let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. So what are you willing to do for your brothers and sisters this evening? What are you willing to do for them? Or do you have a hypocritical love? This kind of love was a notable feature of the early church. Um, Tertullian, you heard of Tertullian? The first Christian to use the word Trinity in the second century. He was born in the second century, died in the third, early in the third. And uh, he was writing a defense of the church in the midst of a hostile Roman world. And he was talking about how much the church gathered and used money, which was voluntary and not exacted from the people as part of the price of pleasing God like the other pagan religions did. They just voluntarily gave money. And he writes this, he says, quote, But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many people, many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, for, they, for themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another. For they themselves will sooner be put to death. They're willing to die for one another. That was what marked out the church. The early church. In that Roman dominated world, it was countercultural to treat people with love. The church in the first centuries was marked by love. And pagan society was not marked by love. The churches looked after people in their midst who had no source of income, for example. They looked after the poor, the orphans, the sick, even at great risk to themselves. No wonder the the early church spread so marvelously with a testimony like that. Is your love genuine? Secondly, let's be a blessing to others. So verses 14 and 15. Uh, And notice that there are uh, no limits to to the blessing. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's no limits because we are to bless those who persecute us. And it just reminds us that for the vast majority of uh, Christian history, uh, the church has been persecuted. That uh, her experience, the church's experience, has been that of persecution, outright opposition from the world around us. And while we may live in a society that is relatively supportive, and certainly has been in the past, uh, and even now is somewhat benign, though it may get worse, the vast majority of Christian experience in the world today uh, and in the past has been of persecutions of various kinds. And considering how we uh, react to this, we would find it easy to, to react in a way that, that fights back, don't you think? You know, if we get oppressed or persecuted, you know, we, we try and we would, our natural reaction is to try and fight back and win. And the other guy loses. That's how the world works, isn't it? Paul says, no. Bless those who persecute you. Be a blessing to them. Even those who persecute you. Now you might say, well, isn't that really hard? Yes, of course it's hard. But consider this. Paul has told us something wonderful already. That God brought blessing to us when we were his enemies. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Christ came to bless his enemies. Sinful enemies. You and me. Before we even knew him. Before we even cared about him. He had come to die. If you're a Christian today, he came to die for you before you were a friend of him. This is our holy God sending his son. A God who owes us nothing. And our wonderful, holy Lord Jesus Christ who didn't deserve the opposition that he faced. But he came. He's willing to count equality with God's not something to be grasped, but actually he was willing to diminish himself, to come down to our level, to humble himself. He didn't cease to be God, but he humbled himself to be at our level and became nothing, became a slave, became a servant of sinners so that those sinners could be saved. I dare say that as we were thinking this morning, that face of Jesus Christ that was slapped left and right and back and forwards and the crown of thorns crushed down upon his head and the blood streaming down his face and he was treated and mistreated abominably. And yet Jesus in love, some of those men might have been saved. We don't know. They might have been saved. Having once been profound enemies. Paul was like that. Paul wasn't an enemy. He sought to kill the church. He was the same age as Jesus. Do you ever think about that? He was probably about the same age as Jesus, learning, studying under Gamaliel in Jerusalem, and Jesus was around at the time. And he would know about Jesus. And as a young Pharisee, he was growing up, and he would would hate Jesus. 
And when he got to a position of authority, he would use his power and authority to try and crush the church, issuing murderous threats against the church, carting them away, throwing them in prison, beating them up, maybe even murdering them, we don't know. Jesus died for him, died for such an enemy. This is how God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's that good news that has brought us new life. Friends, it's impossible, impossible, to be united to that Jesus by faith and not to have the same impulse to bless those who persecute us and stand in opposition to us. It's not possible to want to bless them So we don't write nasty letters. We don't talk loudly about our neighbours. We don't tip our hedge clippings into their garden of our nasty neighbour. We don't park our cars awkwardly to make life difficult for our neighbours. I've seen all that sort of thing happen. We seek to bless our neighbours. And the next verse, verse 15, really is amazing. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Don't look on with casual indifference at people's suffering or their joys. In many ways, our culture teaches us to do that. Our culture tells us, don't get involved with people. Just stay at, your, stay at distance. Don't get too close. And too many of us do that in the church, let alone in the world. Don't get too close. But we need to have that longing for our our lives to be a blessing to others where we can share with people at the deepest level to bless others and to be blessed. And it's no wonder, I think, that when a church is like this, with genuine love and a real desire for others to be blessed, even our persecutors, that the church grew and developed as people saw the love of Jesus in our midst. Be a blessing. Here's the third thing. Live live harmoniously. Verses 16 to 18. Live in harmony, says Paul. Verse 16, with one another. Now the verbs in this verse in the Greek are all about the mind. Be of the... uh, the, In fact, the King James translates it like this. uh, Be of the same mind one toward another. Which we translate as which the ESV translates as live in harmony with one another. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not the high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Don't you love the King James and its language? But it's a reminder, I think, of of what we saw last week, that the implications of the gospel for our lives begins with the transformation of our minds. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we are to be of one mind with each other. So living in harmony is not a pious hope that we look for others in the church to provide for us. But rather it's a self-conscious act of the mind that decides, this is how I'm going to live. I'm going to seek harmony. I'm going to seek to be of the same mind with my brothers and sisters. And that decision, I think, affects all kinds of things. It means that you don't, 
it doesn't, you don't just choose to spend time with people who are just like you. Don't just associate with people in the same circumstances or with the same income level or the same educational achievements or the same, or, or sta- same stage in life. Spend time with the young people and the elderly. I'm getting into that category. You're welcome to spend time with me. But don't just spend time with your own peer group in the church. And how invidious it can be when a church meets in the same building, but there are these kind of segregating lines that divide a church, which leads to disharmony. And that's not to say it's easy. I, uh, I remember one of my memories of, a, of being a, a young st- student in a large city centre church in Glasgow uh, was that there were people from many, many walks of life. There were hundreds of members. And uh, there were surgeons, accountants, lawyers, business people. Very intimidating. Except they were lovely Christian people. But there, then there were also former drunkards and drug addicts. In the same church. And they mixed with one another. They loved one another. It wasn't a perfect church by any, chance, by any means. But you know, it's part of the sanctification and transformation of, of those rich, successful people to be brought down several notches. And for the poor to be lifted up several notches. So that people from very different backgrounds can, can actually speak to one another in brotherly and sisterly love. And encourage each other and bless each other. This is what the gospel does. And it brings an imperative to to go against the flow of our culture. And to seek, not not to segregate ourselves off from people. uh, Commonly thought to be undesirable. But to be active in seeking to do what, uh, seeking what is honorable. To give honor to people in the church. Whoever they are, wherever they're from. I venture to suggest that that would have a a huge impact in Solihull if we were to live that way. And so when new people come through the doors of this church, I think under under God there are two things that impact people when they come in the doors of a church. In this church. One is the ministry of the word. So people are affected by the, the teaching and preaching ministry. Uh, which feeds their souls and they, they understand the, the truths of the gospel and the implications for their lives. And we long for that and we pray for that. And everyone who will be in this pulpit while I'm here will, I'll be sure, I want to be sure, is eager to do that. To put the word of God uh, uh, at its highest possible point. But the other thing that affects people when they come in the door of a church, in addition to the ministry of the word, is the harmony of the people. The love of the people. The welcome amongst the people. The interest level, a genuine desire for human interaction. Showing a genuine interest in our visitors. Now that can go wrong. I I can think of examples where it's gone wrong here. But I won't use an example from here. Let me use an example from another church. Uh, a while back, a few years ago, 
when our daughter was still living with us, Susan and I, uh, we went away to be <coughs> to go to a family wedding, um, and uh, we took the opportunity to. It was over a weekend, so we, we took the opportunity to go and visit another church, and we went to a church that I've known about for years, a big church, big, well-known reputation, wonderful preaching and teaching ministry. Uh, the pastor there wrote books and spoke at conferences, and it was a big church. Uh, it had this reputation of being a good church. And uh, so we went. Not a single person said hello. I remember it. You remember? <laughs> Came to the service, walked in, sat down. Nobody spoke to us when we sat down. And when we got up to go out, there was... Uh, uh, people milling in the foyer outside, and uh, the three of us were standing there. We got a cu- cup of coffee and we were standing there. Nobody came to talk to us, not a single person. This good church. How a church can be self deceived about how good it is when it doesn't speak to visitors? And I mention that, so not so you feel sorry for us. <laughs> Maybe you've had that similar experience. But it's interesting to me that uh, the lasting impression I have of that church now is not its great teaching ministry, but the fact that nobody said hello. And when people leave this church and nobody has said hello to them, that will be the lasting impression they have of this church whatever the teaching ministry is like. See how they love one another, is what they said of the early church. Love one another, and all all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, said Jesus. John 13, 34, and 35. So Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Finally, Overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Now, it's hard to underestimate what a radical statement this is. Uh, because when you find somebody has treated you badly or been nasty or done something really hurtful, you know, what's your reaction to it? What's my reaction to it? I know what mine is. I, I, I sometimes, my initial reaction is always, I want to fight back somehow. And You may not see that on the outside, but sometimes that's what's going inside. <laughs> you want to fight back. And you want to answer an evil word with an evil word. Don't you? You want to fight back and there's an idea in your head that says, I'll show you. (laughs) I'll really stick it to you. But Paul presents to us a a completely different picture of the Christian life. And there's a negative and and a positive here. Uh, The negative is this. The negative is don't avenge yourselves. Don't avenge yourselves. Don't take the law into your own hands. Don't become judge and jury in your own eyes and carry out your own sentence and treat people badly. Instead, leave all of that with God. Because God says, vengeance is mine. There are injustices in the world that we can't deal with through the law. and We can't deal with through church discipline. There are plenty that we can't deal with. And we just have to leave it with God. 
When we come back to this later, we'll come back to this in chapter 13, and we consider human authorities and the exercise of the law, and there is a place for the law and so on, so we'll come to that. But for a lot of the time, you know, we are not to take vengeance into our own hands and become judge and jury. Leave it with God. But often in our interactions with people and in the church and people outside, uh, we need to learn to do this. We need to learn to leave injustice with God. Now the positive side of this is this. Do good to your neighbor. Don't harbor resentment. Don't hold grudges. Don't give the cold shoulder. Do good. I remember once we had a, a bit of a problem with one of our neighbors when we were living in Derby. Um, they had this, this dog that... We only had a three-foot fence between our gardens, and, and they had this dog that was crazy. <laughs> and as soon as you moved in the back, the back garden, the dog was up at the fence, and you, you thought, given enough motivation, it could just hop over and come at you. It's an Alsatian angry dog. And... Uh, uh, and it gets your heart racing. And I remember having a, a slightly tense conversation with the, uh, the lady that lived next door, who was a fearsome lady. And uh, uh, she didn't react well to my challenging her dog, <laughs> right, for, right of her dog to, uh, to bark at me. And for the next year, she was pretty nasty. She, um, and she would cut her clippings and throw them over the fence onto our garden and park their car in strange places <laughs> to be awkward. <clears throat> and we had a decision to make as Christians. What do we do with this kind of neighbor? And we decided, based on the word of God, let's just be nice to them. <laughs> to say hello to them, to smile at them, and to keep just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And eventually, they came round. And all the nonsense stopped. And they wanted to be friends with us again. You know, God, by his grace, does amazing things when you do good to those who do bad to you. Overcome good, evil with good Paul here quotes from Proverbs 25. So verse 20. Paul quotes from uh, Proverbs 25, uh, verses 21, 22. Uh, he says, to, uh, if, your enemy, um, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's quite a strange thing to say. You'll heap burning coals on his head. What does it mean? Um, is it some, some reference to some ancient ritual? <laughs> Um, involving a pot on his head or something like that. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's that. Or is it a reference perhaps uh, to the conscience of the wrongdoer that, uh, that when you do good to somebody that their conscience is somehow stirred up and it feels to them like it's burning coals falling on your head and you want it to stop. I think it's that. That someone who's done wrong can be won over, not by tit for tat, fighting, but by the good done by a Christian, by the one who has been wronged. Just do good. 
Do good. Keep doing good. Even if it hurts. This is what Paul longs for in the lives of these Roman Christians. He longs for it everywhere. He longs for genuine love in the church. He longs for the church to bring blessing to all, including those in the church and outside. He wants the church to live in harmony, to have the same mind. He wants the church to return evil with good. All because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound good? Transformative work. And if you have any doubts that the gospel will transform society, here it is. Here's the teaching on it. May God bless us as we seek to live in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, these are challenging words to us. Perhaps we have um, been faced with something that we have, your word has pinpointed for us, that by your spirit has has, uh, raised in our consciousness that we need to repent of when we pray, Lord God, you would grant us true repentance, that we would turn from these sinful ways, the, the ways of the world. You'd help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to live differently. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.